Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me once again this morning uh, to chapter 1 of the book of Galatians. Last week, for those of you who were here, uh, we began our study of this uh, first century letter written to the church by the Apostle Paul, and we spent uh, some time looking at just uh, the first five verses, uh, which are uh, the letter's greeting. And uh, I pointed out that the letter's greeting uh, is much like a trailer for what is coming in the rest of the book. It gives us a hint of what is to come. And in doing so, we were reminded of three things. That the gospel is from God, that the gospel is about substitution, and the gospel is about rescue. And these foundational things about the gospel, when I say gospel, the good news, the great news of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me, it is at the heart of what Paul is going to press deeper into throughout this entire letter. And so last week's greeting trailer was just a taste of what is to come and now uh now we have seen one the movie begins the full plot is about to be revealed and i just want to remind you even before i read this next section of the book of galatians that this is a letter that is written not to unbelievers that they might know the gospel and understand it. But who is it written to? It's written to the church. It's written to those who say that they believe it. And of course, that's us here this morning. We, we, don't, we, we dare not tune out just because, oh, the gospel, I know about the gospel, I've heard about the gospel. No, the gospel is for us every week, every day. It's crucial, as I hope to show us, as I hope the Apostle Paul will make clear in these next verses. So let's jump in once again. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off last week at verse 6, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're willing, out of honor for that Word. Listen as I read Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 24. Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then to the churches of Judea, excuse me, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to divide this section that I just read into two. First, looking at verses 6 through 9, and then verses 10 through 24. And I want to unpack what these verses have to say with two truths for us to meditate on and think about this morning. The first one is this We must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. I'm no criminal law expert, I don't claim to be, but it's my understanding that in our system of government, we have various classifications of crimes. You guys know this, there is probably more nuance here than I know exists, but here goes. We have infractions or violations like speeding through a school zone, we have misdemeanors like trespassing or disorderly conduct, and then, then we have felonies like arson and burglary and murder, right? In other words, there are things like parking violations that can be treated a bit more lightly than other things which are of the greatest and gravest concern. It applies to our faith as well in reverse, as people of truth, we always want to be pursuing truth and trying to understand what God's Word wants to tell us. But it's true that as Christians, as the church, there are issues, little I issues, and then there are issues. For instance, we may disagree Much to this Presbyterian pastor's disappointment, we might disagree about how we baptized our babies or whether we should baptize our babies. We may disagree about the place of drums in our music worship service. We may disagree about national politics and even church government. But we cannot... We must not 
disagree with how God saves sinners. You see, this is no small matter, but this is one of utmost importance. Five times in these first four verses, the word gospel shows up. Paul is pressing home to the churches of Galatia and to us here today that we must get the gospel right. And he does this by pointing out how the Galatians are getting it wrong. As I alluded to last week, you can hear the seriousness of Paul's voice, his written voice from the very start. And you can hear it today in the first three words that he speaks. Right? Uh, after greeting the people of Ephesus, for instance, in the book of Ephesians, he, he prays and he, he gives thanks for them. After greeting the church at Philippi, he prays thanking God as he remembers them. And then after greeting the Colossians, he says, we always thank God when we pray for you. And here he begins with none of that. Here he begins with astonishment, with shock, with disbelief. He is stunned. Our modern slang might have Paul saying, are you kidding me, Galatians? Seriously? You're walking away. You're abandoning the very life that I taught to you. The word in verse 6, the word deserting, is just as strong as you might imagine. It's a word that's used to describe soldiers as they turn their back on their men, on their posts, on their vows. Paul's saying to the churches of Galatia, you guys are religious turncoats. I can't believe it. Now how much time had passed between Paul being there with the churches of Galatia? We know from last week that he had history with these churches. This was his... This was the region where he had visited on his first missionary journey. So we don't know how much time has passed between then when he was with them and the letter now, but there is some unbelief at the speed at which things have changed. You see, these, these teachers, these false teachers have rolled into town and we, we briefly talked about them last week. They've come to do two things. They've come to question the legitimacy of Paul himself and they've come to contradict the message, the gospel that he taught these young believers. Now remember, this is a, this is a first century church in Asia Minor, Minor, which is modern day Turkey. This is a, a young church, a new community of ethnic Jews and Gentiles, men and women from all other nations being formed from a faith that the Jews had held fairly exclusive rights to for generation upon generation. Right? And the Jewish faith, theirs, that people was a people that was defined by feasts, by rituals, by laws, by sacrifices. And now suddenly Paul and others, though Paul is in the crosshairs here, Paul comes and says the person and work of Jesus has trumped all of that. 
And these false teachers say, not so fast. Jump ahead with me if you have your Bibles. If you don't, I'll just read it to you. Jump ahead to verse, excuse me, chapter 6, the last chapter in the book. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, almost to the end of the book. It gets us, it makes clear where Paul is going, what the issue is at hand. Chapter 6 of Galatians, verses 12 and 13, he says this, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Luke says it this way when writing in Acts 15. He says, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is the issue. Adherence to the customs and obedience to the laws of the Jews, specifically the rite of circumcision, this covenant sign given to infant boys eight days old, that was being taught as necessary for salvation. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. And his language exudes the seriousness that this is. This is not a different gospel. This is no gospel at all. It's a grave distortion of that which he had been entrusted with. Last week I mentioned the the simple equation, which is the title of a book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now teachers are coming in to the churches in Galatia and they're saying, sure, Jesus died for your sins. That was significant. But that's just the beginning. That just really gets the ball rolling so that now the law can and and should be kept. Let's let Moses finish what Jesus started, essentially. That's not good news. Jesus plus anything else doesn't equal Jesus plus a helpful addition. Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. It's a cancellation of the work that Jesus came to accomplish. Martin Luther said it this way, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. We know, we know, brothers and sisters, that in our heart of hearts, building our confidence on our own work, on our own ability to keep our nose clean and to do what the Lord asks of us, we know that that's a disaster. That's a dead end. We must get the gospel right because grace is at stake. The very person of Jesus is at stake. You notice when he says, about, when he talks about desertion, he says, you're not just deserting an ideology or a set of principles. It's desertion of him. It's a desertion of the man, Jesus. 
more than simply a rational decision to follow a different path. Here, Jesus pleading to you, I am enough. You don't have to add anything to me. I've done it all. See, this is no small matter. And Paul just keeps hammering and hammering and hammering this home. I mean, he brings up angels in verse 8. I mean, this raises the stakes, doesn't it? We don't know quite what Paul's thinking. Is he thinking here of, of Satan prating as an angel of light spreading these lies? Or are the false teachers that have come into Galatia, are they somehow appealing to angelic authority? We don't know, but, but what we ought to hear as Paul brings up, even if angels preach something different, what we ought to hear is this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. The message is unchanging. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. There is nothing else needed, period. That's interesting. When we think about angels... And an angel appearing with a different gospel, we think about what would happen after Paul wrote these words. It's a little side note. But what happened in the 7th century? A man named Muhammad claimed that the angel Gabriel appeared to him to give him new revelation. What would happen generations later? On our soil, a man named Joseph Smith would claim that an angel appeared to him to give him a clearer, better gospel. Paul says no. It's a perversion. It's no gospel at all. And then he says maybe what is one of the strongest words to say to the church of Jesus Christ, he says, accursed. Two times in verses 8 and 9. I mean, this language of Paul is no messing around. This is the language of divine judgment. The Hebrew equivalent is being devoted to destruction. Right? In modern language, Paul is saying with all the divine weight behind it, damn you who pervert the gospel! May damnation, God's judgment, come upon you for leading people astray. It's that strong. We've got to get the gospel right. Well, brothers and sisters, what does this have to do with us? Here in 2020, in Edmonds, Washington, John Stott, the English preacher who's now with the Lord, said this. He said, The church's greatest troublemakers now and then are not outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. Let me tell you how this is happening Well, let me begin by saying that every other religion in the world, the religion that Muhammad came up with that is now known as 
Islam. Every other religion in the world is based on works, and most of them without Jesus in the equation. So we know that theirs is not the gospel. But if we move a little closer to us, we've already mentioned the perversion of Mormonism, which is not the gospel. We could add to that Jehovah's Witnesses, which is not the gospel. But let's move it real close. How about within our evangelical circles? Brothers and sisters, we have our own way of distorting the message of the gospel. There's the prosperity and social gospel, which distorts the reason for Jesus' sacrifice, making it all about earthly wealth and, and good social causes. Let's not talk about suffering. Then there's liberal, progressive Christianity, which distorts the gospel under cultural pressure to make things more palatable by redefining core essential doctrines such as sexuality and hell and the kind of teaching that Jesus embodied. And they say, let's not talk about sin. That's not what the gospel is about. And then there's even conservative Christianity, which distorts grace by making salvation about keeping your nose clean, having a faithful quiet time, abstaining from X, Y, and Z. Don't, let's not, no, don't talk about your brokenness. Don't talk about your struggle in church. Come into this place with it together. You see, whether it be the prosperity gospel, progressive Christianity, conservative Christianity, we have our own distortions. And so the the fact of the need of remaining vigilant concerning the gospel message, forgetting the gospel right, The free gift of God in Jesus for sinners, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's not rocket science, neither is it good advice. It's simple, good news that we must never outgrow, that we must never distort or pervert. But I think our hearts, our hearts so easily want to, want to contribute. We want to work rather than rest. We want to perform rather than humbly accept the gift. And Paul reminds us here, as he reminded the churches of Galatia, don't abandon Jesus. You must get the gospel right. That's the first thing. But just who was this Paul anyway? I mean, why should the church in Galatia, why should we here, why should we put all our eggs in what Paul has to say? Well, that's where we and that's where he goes next. And that's why I wanted to include these next verses, which we're going to cover more quickly than those first four. But verses... 10 and following. 
You see, as we move on, Paul gets personal. He invites us into his story. He invites us into his humanity. And as he does so, this is the second truth I want us to think about. The gospel inevitably redefines us. We must get the gospel right. And the gospel inevitably redefines us. Paul wants to show the church, he wants to remind the church of how his world was turned upside down and what conclusions you might draw from that. The gospel for Paul has been a life-altering reality. Paul has gone from a religious zealot, a religious terrorist, to a pastor of those whom he persecuted. How did that happen? Well, he gives us this autobiographical journey that essentially supports and defends the message that he carries. You see, here's what seems to be some of the strategy of the false teachers. Paul is out there, Paul's out there just to make a name for himself. Paul's out there suiting his message for the masses, particularly for these Gentiles, just making it easy for the Gentiles to become Christians, to follow Jesus. And to that assertion, Paul retorts and says, I'm not in this for popularity. Are you kidding? I'm the most unlikely guy to carry this message. I was the one who sought righteousness through the very means that you false teachers preach. I persecuted those who taught and believed otherwise, and now look at me. Remember, Paul was Saul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was bent on destroying the message of grace in Jesus. He held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen so that they could get a better wind-up. But in an instant, a God-ordained and accomplished instant, everything changed. The Jesus who had set him apart before birth appeared to him, met him, opened up his spiritual eyes by blinding his physical ones. Only God could reach such a man, and he did. The gospel had redefined him. The power of the risen Jesus had invaded him. And the most unlikely of messengers now carries with him this treasure. A gospel treasure that Paul says wasn't invented, wasn't learned from anyone, but was received from Jesus directly. And to support this, Paul says that after Jesus met him, he went for three years to Arabia. Now, why he went there, we don't know exactly. What he did there, we don't know exactly. Perhaps he went there to preach. Perhaps he went there to quietly reflect to pour over the Old Testament Scriptures, to see Jesus where he had never seen Jesus before. The point of that is, the point of him saying that is, Jesus was his teacher, not anyone else. Only later did he make his way to the center of emerging Christianity, Jerusalem itself, and even there, 
It was Cephas, who was Peter, and James. Those are the only guys that he interacted with. He didn't learn this from them. He learned this directly from Jesus. One can only imagine the conversations when Paul rolled into Jerusalem and he sat down with Peter. Peter, a man who had walked with Jesus, who had witnessed all that Jesus had done, who had denied Jesus and been broken before Jesus and restored by Jesus. And here he's sharing with Paul, let me tell you, let me tell you about this man. Let me tell you about the God-man Jesus. You see, Paul says in these verses, look at my life. Look at what the Gospel has done. Let this give you confidence in who I am and in what I preach. And as we sit here today, I think the application for us is much the same. He invites us to do the same. I mean, the Apostle Paul not only gives us the core message of our faith, the Gospel, but the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We better be sure that, that he's trustworthy. One author has put the Apostle Paul in the same paradigm that, that C.S. Lewis puts the Lord Jesus in. That Paul was either a liar a fraud who knew that his message was untrue, but went to the grave proclaiming it. Or he was a lunatic, deluded, though intellectually sharp and sound. Or Paul actually met the risen Jesus. And Paul actually was an authorized spokesman of the Gospel of Jesus. So I think Paul's autobiography here, this mini-autobiography, does the same thing for us as it did for the church of Galatia. It gives us confidence in his message. Only Jesus could have done this work. There's no other explanation. We all have those people in our lives that we think surely they, they are out of reach. And then Jesus saves them. And you say, glory be to God. Only the Gospel could do that. That's proof of the Gospel's power. That's proof of the Gospel's truth. Only Jesus could have redefined the mess that was the Apostle Paul. And He's done the same thing for us. How has the Gospel redefined us? How has the Gospel redefined our calling? How has the Gospel turned your life upside down? Has it turned your life upside down? Is it continuing to turn your life upside down? Brothers and sisters, it is the good news of free grace that must be guarded against all impostors that must be proclaimed to the nations in order that its life-changing, life-giving, life-transforming power might press on to the ends of the earth until that risen Jesus comes to us and appears to us once again. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the tenacity and the urgency of the Apostle Paul in his message to the church. Oh, Father, give us wisdom, give us grace to see all the ways that our culture, that the world, that the evil one would seek to to twist and to pervert and to distort the gospel, even to make us as a church interested and consumed with something else other than the gospel. Father, protect us and give us grace. And we thank You for this encouragement again of the truth of the message that is contained here, that is preserved for us in Your Word. Father, indeed, our faith hinges on the resurrection. It hinges on that event in time and space, and it's bolstered by the ripples that flow from that. As your people, as your followers, your servants, like the Apostle Paul, as their lives were transformed, consumed, till their very last breath with proclaiming this message of hope and grace. Oh Father, amidst all of the distractions of this life, amidst all of the potato chips that we might nibble on, may we focus on the heart of the Gospel, the meat of Your Word. Father, give us grace for these things, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.